0: Nobody, 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 nobody,
1: nobody,
2: nobody read short stories. Hi everyone, I'm Megan and welcome to another exciting episode of Nobody Read Short Stories, the podcast where we read short stories so you don't have to. You can find all of our previous episodes at nobodyreadshortstories.com. Tonight's episode features Macro-Neurotics by Lisa Coten, which is the story of a woman who drops out of college and life in general to live in a macrobiotic study house in Boston to try and quit sugar. So without further ado, here is Lisa Coten reading her own story,
0: Macro-Neurotics.
2: Content warning, this episode discusses eating
0: disorders. I wake in after yet another night of debauchery. A bag of Pepperidge Farm Milano chocolate-filled cookies, two sesame bagels with peanut butter, a bag of peanut M&Ms, a pint of mint chocolate chip, and cheese, lots and lots of cheese. Real cheese though, not the fake Velveeta crap. I was raised in a health food house. I avoid junk food. In the fall of 78, there's little talk of eating disorders, but I know something is wrong. Nobody gets that I have a problem because I'm nowhere near fat. I'm also not anorexic, nor am I bulimic. The only explanation for my thinness is my rocket speed metabolism, my dancer-esque physique, and fasting after I binge. Plus, I worry a lot. That must burn a few calories. I clench my jaw, swallowing repeatedly to squelch the wall of nausea that rises up the back of my head. My pupils pulsate, probably from all the fat, sugar, and shit lodged in my gut. I have a cramp in my lower right side, a pocket of pain that gurgles when I press down into it. It started after I left home three and a half years ago at 17 and began sugar binging. The family doctor called it irritable bowel. He got that right. My bowels must be pissed off and stingy, too, considering I only take a crap about once every two weeks. I don't want to have to take a crap. It's so menial. I don't want to have to pull down my pants and see that subtle but developing role of womanly gut in those slightly wider thighs that didn't used to be there. I don't wanna have to sleep or breathe or chew. A chiropractor told me I was full of shit, literally, and sold me a can of volcanic ash shake mix for 25 bucks. I never tried it. I'll shit when I'm ready. People always say that people with eating problems have no willpower. I'm the willfulest fucker I know. I tell myself I'll quit binging when I get diabetes. I heard somewhere that diabetes makes you dizzy. So after a binge, I always roll my eyes around inside my head to make myself dizzy so I can make sure it stops. Otherwise it might be diabetes. Of course, my biggest fear is cancer. At this time, no one's talking about the cancer sugar connection, but I have my suspicions. Or maybe I just go to the darkest place. Actually, I don't just go to the darkest place. I live there. I own real estate. I should be happy. I'm living my dream, rooming in an old farmhouse and working with a professional mime troupe in a small New England town. Well, semi-professional. Everybody knows there's no money in mime. My parents are supporting me, but I really should be happy. I chose to be here. I've already dropped out of two colleges, worked with three performing arts programs, lived in seven different cities, and only just turned 21. For my birthday, my mom sent me $25, cash. I spent every dime on sugar before noon, alone. The only person who gets my problem is my sister, Sarah. 14 months my elder, Sarah has always been my higher power, my heroine. As my Brooklynese father used to say, if Sarah jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge, Lisa would follow. It's true. I'd put her a needle and shoot her in my arm if I could. Instead, I turned to sugar and then to her to save me from it. I can't stop binging, I cry into the phone to my sister. She recently quit sugar under the guidance of a hardcore Japanese healer. He put her on a strict diet of brown rice and some putrid smelling medicinal teas and her bladder infections disappeared. Not a granule of sugar has crossed her lips since. The pain in my side won't go away. I don't know what to do. Sarah tells me about a macrobiotic study house in Boston. She suggests that I check myself into sugar rehab so the food Nazis can kick my ass and cure me. It will be macrobiotic lockdown. No white flour, no milk products, no animal fat, no caffeine, and no sugar. Those macros know sugar is the devil, even more than booze or cigarettes. It's the ultimate yin. Meat is the ultimate yang. In the middle of the food scale is brown rice. Brown rice is like their god. Chew your rice, balance your diet, and you can solve any problem. Cure any pain. Your lover just dumped you? You're too yin. Eat root vegetables and red adzuki beans. Got a migraine? Too yang. Try stewed apples with barley malt. Got heartburn? Lost your job? Got a brain tumor? Find your balance. Chew your rice. Chew, chew, chew. As for me, I am yin incarnate. If there was a macrobiotic dictionary and you looked up yin, you'd see a picture of my face, a little frosting smeared on my lip. It's lunchtime when I arrive in Beantown. Thank God. The sooner I get that miraculous macrobotic food into me, the sooner I will find salvation. I lug my bags from the back of the cab and peer up at the austere, ivy-colored-covered tutor. Good. This is just what I need. A severe, sober setting where I'll be forced to get my shit together or take a shit with any luck. I ring the bell and am greeted by Enid, a small, poker-faced gal with mousy brown hair she's as warm as cold rice. Hi, I mutter. I'm, um, Lisa. I, uh, I know that, she says, looking slightly disgusted. We're expecting you. Oh, great, I say, reaching for my bags. She stops me and points to my feet. Remove your boots first, she instructs. I learn it's a house rule to prevent tracking in dirty snow along with the bad vibes of the civilian omnivore world. I remove my boots and follow her through the dark, wood-paneled vestibule that spills into the large, dimly lit dining room. There, about a dozen sallow-faced, scrawny men and several beefier-looking women are seated on floor pillows around a long, low, Japanese-style dining table. There is no conversation, just the steady sound of chewing, the occasional chopstick gently tapping the side of the bowl, and a sporadic smacking of lips. Enid leads me to the end of the table where her husband, Marty, sits cross-legged, chewing away. When I called to reserve a space in the house, I told Marty about the sugar and the side pain. He said he was sure macrobiotics could help. I hope he's more welcoming than his wife. This is Lisa, she flatly states, then zombies off. Welcome, Marty says, and motions for me to sit across from him. Please, sit. He reminds me of a younger version of my dad, only with hair, and enlightened. Taking my seat, I'm amused by the juxtaposition of this gruff, frizzy-headed, obviously, I assume, ex-Brooklyn Jew sitting cross-legged, chomping open mouthed on the allegedly sacred food. He should be eating bagels and lox, wiping cream cheese from his lip with the back of his sleeve. Enid returns to slide an empty bowl and a pair of chopsticks before me, and Marty gestures to the bountiful spread. Please, go ahead. There are platters of brown rice, dark red beans, and vegetables. Squash, to be exact. Yellow and green, steamy, watery squash. The gag-worthy legume. I always feel pressured to savor as a vegetarian. I loathe squash. In fact, I can't stand most vegetables. When you're full of sugar, the last thing you want are vegetables. I wish I wanted to eat them like my sister, Sarah. If I eat like her, I think maybe I can be like her. When she went vegetarian at age 10, I followed right behind. My mom took a vegetarian cooking class to accommodate us. My dad suffered through multiple lentil cheddar loaves and carrot raisin salads. This health food is killing me, he loved to say. He never recognized my vegetarianism. Sarah got all the credit. If we went out to dinner, he'd gloat to the waitress. My daughter's a vegetarian. It takes great discipline, you know. I wanted to put my face in his and yell, I'm a vegetarian too, you know. I have discipline too, you know. Love me too. What's that? I asked Marty, all sweet and innocent, pointing to a bowl of something stringy and black. That, he says between lip smacks, is seaweed. Have some. I smile politely and fill my bowl with some rice and beans. Then I cautiously add a few chunks of the dreaded squash along with a spoonful of the slimy seaweed for good measure. I chopstick in a mouthful of rice, then immediately dig up another bite. Marty frantically waves his paw at me. No, 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 no. You got to chew every bite 40 times. Very important. Chewing your rice is everything. Oh, Okay, thanks. I nod appreciatively, then take my next bite and start chewing. Holding my hands in my lap like a good macrobiotic girl, I mentally count one, two, three. Chewing steadily, I casually glance down the table, perusing the lineup of munching men for potential lovers, nine, ten, eleven. It's always a good motivation to eat healthy if there's a cute guy to work towards, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen. But the men all look sort of feeble staring down at their bowls, chewing away, lots of spectacles and unkempt beards. One guy even has some rice stuck to his mustache. 23, 24. Fortunately, the house has an open-door policy for macrobiotic travelers who are just passing through, so my future soulmate could arrive at any moment. By the time I get to 28, there's nothing solid left in my mouth to chew. I usually don't even chew my food at all, so 28 is pretty damn good. I take another bite of rice, determined to make it to 40, and stick my chopsticks straight down into my food. No, Marty objects. Never leave your sticks like that. The energy from the food will run through the sticks and out into the universe. Oh, sorry. I quickly pluck them out. Always place your sticks on the table facing in, towards you, so the energy will continue moving into you. I must be in bad shape because this actually makes sense to me. Time to try the beans. I do like beans, especially baked beans in a can. Yum. But these beans don't taste like that. These beans taste like dirt and farts, like dirty, muddy farts. That's okay. This food is going to cure me. As I mix up my beans with my rice, Marty nails me again. No, don't mix up your food. Keep each food separate. Mixing up food means you have a mixed up mind. Okay. I'm so glad he doesn't know I'm already mixed up. After lunch, Enid leads me upstairs where I meet my roommate, an eccentric 70-ish earth mama named Jean with wispy white locks and a slender youthful figure. I didn't see her at lunch. Maybe she's on a special plan, or maybe she's one of those health food freaks who never really eats whole meals. They just nibble on shit all day like a bird. Jean is seated at the corner of her futon surrounded by troughs of wheatgrass. She's gnawing on a crust of bread so dense it could cause a concussion. She proudly holds the bread up for us to behold. I just found this in the back of my van. It was there for six months. All I had to do was steam it. It It's delicious. Jean clearly embraces a healthy existence. She actually wants to live. Good for her. It's not that I don't want to live. I mean, that's why I'm here, right? I just don't know how to live without chocolate. My roommate is the first guest downstairs when the 5.45 gong summons everyone to group meditation. My sister Lauren, the Zen Buddhist, has been trying to get me to meditate to quiet my mind. But it's 5 fucking 45 in the morning. Why should we have to quiet our minds when we just woke up? Isn't that what sleep is for? But maybe this is good. At this point, 24 sugar-free hours are all I have under my belt. Cookies, cake, and candy bounce off the walls of my brain. I sit cross-legged in the very back of the meditation room in case I nod off. But the scent wafting from the kitchen intrigues me. Um, what's that smell? Is that what I think it is? Why, it smells like chocolate chip cookies. Um, it's not cookies. In fact, it is oatmeal. The thick, pasty, steel-cut kind that sticks to your ribs for years. And there's more squash, which people actually eat. For breakfast, at least it's baked pumpkin squash, so it's less watery. If I stick to the diet and never eat sugar again, I am sure I will learn to love squash, as well as all legumes, not if, when. As long as I don't leave the house and venture out into the world of evil yin, I'll be safe. Every day after breakfast, there is the preparation of lunch. Enid solicits kitchen volunteers. Helping out is part of the deal. I now have three whole sugar-free days. Woo! Three days! This is the longest I've abstained from sugar since I left home. But I'm getting antsy. I raise my hand to volunteer. It will keep me out of trouble. Besides, I want to be good. And there is so much to learn. Like, you don't need to refrigerate cooked rice. You can just keep it in a bowl covered with a damp cloth for up to three days. If you, can't, if you cut carrot slices on the diagonal rather than straight across, every slice will have an even mix of yin and yang in every bite. Stewed pears with just a few drops of brown rice syrup will satisfy any sweet tooth. Yeah, right. Several other eager macro beavers and I watch as Enid picks up a kitchen knife that probably weighs more than her and irately whacks the stems off a bunch of green, giant green kale. We're having shrubs for lunch. Excellent. She measures out several cups of brown rice so carefully you'd think it were Tiffany Crystal. One grain, 10,000 grains, she says. In other words, don't fuck with the rice. She pours the precious grain into a pressure cooker and hands it to me. Fill this with water and then we'll rinse it. Careful. I am so nervous as I take that pot that my hand slips and I nearly drop the whole thing. She glares up at me like I'm the yin devil. It's amazing how someone half my size can make me feel so small. Sorry, I say grimacing exaggeratedly and proceed to fill the pot staring, mesmerized at the faucet water as it flows over the multitude of treasured grain. I want sugar, now. Three days of pasty grains, beans, fart-inducing cabbage, kale, and other cruciferous crudités have made my gut feel like an atomic bomb factory. If I swallowed a lit match, I'd blast to the moon. I wish I could fart, but I'm so blocked up, even the farts can't find their way out. The only thing that will cut through my wall of gas and shit is sugar, pure, unadulterated sugar. Maybe a drop of brown rice syrup will do it. It's worth a try. I'm too afraid of Enid, so I wait until we are done and the kitchen crew disbands. Once I am sure Enid has gone upstairs, I slip into the pantry. If anyone sees me, I'll just tell them I'm making notes on how to set up a proper macrobiotic pantry. In 30 seconds, I manage to choke down two heaping tablespoonfuls of disgustingly sweet brown rice syrup. I grab the sesame tahini butter and spoon in a glob into my mouth, followed by another helping of the syrup, trying not to choke to death. The concoction gives me nowhere near the buzz that I so desperately seek. I, I, I shouldn't be here. What am I doing? I should be on stage. I need sugar, real sugar. Just one last big splurge. Then I'll be ready. No, don't do it. You're three days clean. Yeah, but not really because I'm still overeating. Exercise. Yes. Yes. A brisk walk. Great idea! Who cares that it's a hundred below zero outside? It's been three days since I set foot out. I don't trust myself. There's that liquor store at the bottom of the hill. We passed it on my first day in the taxi. I picture all the snacks displayed by the register. Why tempt myself? Just walk the other direction. No, nope, I'll be fine. I haven't come this far just to blow it all in some cheap liquor store crap. I bundle up and head out into the bitter cold January afternoon. As I trot down the hill, I dig my hand deep into my pocket, and there it is, probably about a buck fifty in change. I should have left it behind, but you should never leave home empty-handed. I've always thought that, especially in a strange city. I mean, what if something happens? Indeed, something is happening. My feet have picked up speed, and I am walking briskly down the hill. It's freezing. Of course, I'm walking fast. Four blocks ahead is the liquor store sign. I'll just pop in to warm up what if someone from the macro house sees me? Maybe they'll think I'm an alcoholic. That's better than being a sugar junkie. Even Michio Kushi, the almighty leader of the macrobiotic community, drinks whiskey and smokes like a chimney. He says, if your diet is clean, you can do that. Too bad I'm not a drunk instead. There are going to be Snickers bars. My gait quickens. Slow down, honey. Maybe I could just have one. Like a normal person, I break into a light jog Am I really doing this? Doing what? I'm just getting some exercise. <laughs> but I know well, full well the only thing I c- that can pry off this serpent that is strangling me from within is sugar. As I bite into the milky smooth chocolate coating, it will crack apart, giving way to a sleek strip of caramel just below the surface. I am running at full speed down the hill, running to satisfy a raging sugar hard on before I implode. The liquor store electronic bell dings as I enter. And there they are, lined up neatly on the shelf just below the cash register. Hershey's, Mars, Kit Kat, open wide for Chunky. Actually, my mother never allowed Chunky's. Something about a rat hair. Hallelujah. I have enough change for a Snickers and a Milky Way. I procure my goods and rush back out holding off, tearing into a wrapper until I am fully outside so the clerk won't see me, just in case he knows someone at the macro house. He'd call up there and describe the crazy lady with the big nose and the dark hair who couldn't even wait to open her candy until she was out the door. My heart flutters, my mouth fills with drool, rip goes the sleek brown Milky Way paper, and there it is, all firm, all fine, all mine. My teeth settle into my first bite, and at last, I am home. Oh, how I missed you. you a thick, smooth bed of chocolate, caramel, and pillows, soft nougat, right here, right now. This is everything I know and need and want. I could live inside this bite forever. I pull up my green parka hood to conceal my bulging cheeks from the passing cars, just in case any of the drivers are headed to the house. It's like I'm having sex out in public, like I'm walking down the street, screwing as I go. By the time I reach the corner, I've demolished my Milky Way. I cross the street, head up the hill, and nearly smack into a light post as I look down to tear open my Snickers. This time I will try to chew each bite 40 times, or at least 10. Oh, fuck it. I'm two blocks away. I must demolish my contraband before returning to the house. I wish this joy would last. One last bite. So sad. I wish I had more cash so I could keep going. But I am broke and freezing. And there is the macro house just a block away. I lick my lips, wipe away bits of chocolate, kick off my boots and tear inside, running into Marty in the vestibule. Cold out there, huh? He asks. Yeah, Sure is. Try not to let out any air when I speak so he won't smell my breath. Try not to let him see my eyes in case they are sanpaku. That's what the macros call it when somebody is imbalanced, like from drugs or booze or sugar. The eyes have more whites below the irises than above. Macrobiotic teacher George Osawa predicted the deaths of Marilyn Monroe and George Kennedy because he said they were sanpaku. He said Charles Manson has it too. Keep your eyeballs open, Lisa keep them even. So how's it going? How you feeling? Marty asks. Pretty good, I say, because actually I do. Right now I feel fan-fucking-tastic. Well, you look good, he says, nodding his head. I hope he's not attracted to me. Enid would find out and she'd poison my beans for sure. But Marty repels me with those hairy arms and that angry New York accent. I'm afraid he's going to start yelling at me like my dad. I don't know if it's the sugar and caffeine from the chocolate kicking in or if it's my fear of being taken out by Enid, but a peristaltic wave rises in my gut. Thankfully, Marty moves along so I can take legitimate refuge in the john. The eagle has landed. Back in my room, my roommate Jean is meditating. I lay back on my futon and stare up at the cottage cheese ceiling, trying not to let my arms touch my body just in case it is finally fat. I grab my journal and quickly record every morsel of food I consume today. One bowl of oatmeal, a baked apple, some pumpkin seeds, two pieces of rice bread with tahini, a bowl of miso soup, a bunch of noodles, five rice cakes with tahini, a bunch of brown rice sprinkled with seaweed salt, some cabbage, some carrots, a few big spoonfuls of tahini with brown rice syrup, an S and an M. That Snickers and Milky Way recorded in code just in case. I should write how I hate myself for falling off the wagon, how I hate my body, how hopeless I feel that I will ever quit sugar. Instead I write, in a little while I will have a wonderful healthy dinner and I will attempt to chew my rice 40 times every mouthful. That will bring me back to center I just want to be balanced and centered. I also want to start a movement theater company and become famous for my solo theater pieces and fall in love. But first, I must stop eating sugar forever. There. I'm done. I will never eat sugar again. Again. End of story.
2: Oh, my gosh. Lisa, what a fantastic job. Thank you so much. So um, we are going to have you leave us for a bit. Okay. And we're going to talk about you, not behind your back, because you'll be listening. And then we will come back and do an interview a little bit later.
0: Okay, sounds good.
2: All right, so now I want to introduce our special guest. He's someone that you guys should be familiar with. So tonight we have Jeremy Ray with us. Yay, let's bring Jeremy on. Oh my gosh, it's the invisible Jeremy. (gasps) there he is oh my gosh welcome back jeremy we're so excited to have you on the show me too i
1: didn't exist until this show i don't know what happened it's like it's like that show severance like
2: yeah i know i know it's like you had to come back for as a as a special guest so that you could be in existence again right you were like out there floating in the ether
1: megan can you please not turn this off again i i, I like existing <laughs>
2: okay Okay, we'll just leave it running forever.
1: (laughs) So how about that, Lisa?
2: Isn't Lisa fantastic? Now, wait, before we start talking, I have to set cranky because you know how we get. um...
1: Oh, this is, oh, for people who are new, this is the best. I hope it still works. It still works. So backstory, Megan will set this timer. She's going to forget about the timer. That's our goal is to make her forget about the timer. And then she'll Uh freak out when the timer goes off.
2: Yeah, it's Jeremy's favorite thing. It's my not favorite. necessarily my favorite thing, um, but it's
1: it's also going to be yours.
2: Yeah, it'll be your favorite thing. Megan's uh, taking
1: one for the team right now.
2: I always take one for the team. That's that's what I do. It's it's part of my job, but that's okay. I'll do it. So Lisa, I so Jeremy. To full disclosure, Jeremy and I both know Lisa from our a uh, regular writing group. And we've known Lisa's work for a really long time. So I am so excited to have her uh, to feature one of her pieces on the show. And she's a fantastic performer, as you guys just heard. So good. And I mean, what a fantastic job, right? Like, I just love how Lisa just embodies whatever she's reading. And she's so like full of life when she's reading it.
1: Yeah, she makes me feel conflicting things at the same time. I'm laughing. I'm sad. (laughs) Uh, A a lot of things.
2: Well, I think that's because when her work is very authentic and she's, you know, you really feel like she's speaking to you and telling you, the reader or the listener or whomever, like, this is my personal story. And she's so forthright with what she's saying that it comes off as funny and heartfelt but also like kind of gives you that punch where you're like oh man I really I really feel what you're going through in your struggle I,
1: I literally felt what she was going through my mouth I don't do candy <sighs> but I was salivating like she was yeah. saying Snickers and I was like give me that Snickers
2: yeah I know right and I just I love that whole sequence I'm with still her. doing it
1: she made I, I I think it's because she made it like understandably like bad. It was like, you know, like that dirty sex she was talking about, like the sex in public. That's kind of how it is, right? You uh-huh. shouldn't do this, but then you kind of want it more, right? Like
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean that's that's the way she sets it <sighs> up. It's like you know it's you know it's wrong for her to do it, but you kind of want her to do it anyway because you want to see her do it.
1: <laughs> but also with that, uh I really appreciated how honestly so was because it's something that I feel like a lot of people wouldn't understand. Like, you know, there's a lot of addictions where people are like, oh, I salute you, right? Like you are trying to overcome an addiction, but like sugar has this like connotation to it, but it's something that legitimately people are addicted to
2: yeah absolutely and i think lisa's story really makes you feel that like if you're someone oh
1: absolutely yeah who
2: i mean i lisa's the first person that i ever really knew who had a sugar addiction and so i was like oh that's that's new that's something i haven't come across before and through reading her work i i really came to understand what it was all about and like it is a true addiction and it is something it is a true struggle obviously and just like any other addiction it's something that you have to fight against for the rest of your life you know it's not something that just just kind of goes away and i i love how lisa is able to be so all authentic and help us to, to like go into her world and really feel the struggle that she's, that she's going through. And, and in this way though, that's like so funny and so comical. And, you know, right about the time where I feel like I can't stop laughing, she kind of gives me a gut punch. And then, and then I'm like, Oh yeah, but this is someone's life and she's really struggling.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there's, there's, all types of addictions, but like ones where, where you're, you have to consume, right? Like that's something you have to do. So with some addictions, you can place yourself out of the environment, but that is one of them that you're constantly triggered, right? Like, I, I mean, that's something I want to ask Lisa, but it sounds like it would be something that would be triggering depending on what you eat.
2: Oh yeah, right? I'm, I'm sure. And like, we know so much about sugar now and like what it does to your body and how it rewires your brain and your gut biome and all these other sort of things that like it physically changes your body. So- And and it's
1: calling to you, like the, the bacteria in your gut is telling you this is what you want. So it's not just addiction. There's like, there's things talking to you in your body, which is crazy. Yeah. The candida. Yeah, absolutely.
2: Absolutely. And I think that's something that we don't necessarily think about. Or at least I don't think that much about. Um because I I fortunately have never had a physical <laughs> Yes.
1: Yay! It happened, you guys.
2: I jumped.
1: Mega jumped.
2: Um all right. So Before we bring Lisa back on, I just wanna tell everyone a little bit about how awesome she is. So Lisa has been a writer and a performer for um, her entire life. And born and raised in California, Lisa survived childhood by writing, directing, starring in plays about her family, and then forcing them to watch. She survived adolescence by becoming a teenage mime, and she graduated NYU School of the Arts Dramatic Writing with honors. While in New York, she worked as an office temp by day, solo performer by night. Her show, Temporary Girl, was a one woman show about a dysfunctional office family as seen through the eyes of the office temp. And it played at the Edinburgh Festival and toured the US and the UK with extended runs in Chicago, San Francisco, and London. She then co wrote and co directed and starred in Temporary Girl, the movie, which played at the Austin Film Festival, Atlantic Film Festival. Atlanta Film Festival, Chicago Alt Film Festival, and American Cinematique's Alternative alternative Screen. Temporary Girl was sold to Genius Pictures and you can watch it on Netflix. Her memoir, My Confection, Odyssey of a Sugar Addict was published by Beacon Press and you can find that where you would find any other books. And this is actually the first essay from that memoir. So without further ado, let's bring Lisa back on. Hi, Lisa. Welcome Hi. back.
0: Oh, thanks thank- for having me.
2: Oh, thank you for being here. And thank you for that fantastic read. <laughs> what you really, I, I just feel so privileged to have someone with your talent in oh. performing on this show. And, and you really, you really them with that piece. So thank you for that.
0: Thank you. My gosh, I'm honored. Yeah. Thank you.
2: So can you tell us a little bit about what made you decide to write about this experience and like, of what what's the impetus for
0: that? Yeah, I um you know I was writing shows for years and years, uh One Woman shows and um and then my mom passed away. Um and I I'm pretty sure she a lot of why she passed away was was from sugar. Um she was a sugar addict as well. And um I couldn't find my my footing. Um, I couldn't get back on stage, and I, but I needed to write, so I just started writing about my sugar addiction, and um, it, the book sort of wrote itself. Um, and I just I went back through all my history, and um, it's all divided into you know into pieces, and it um, and that was how I came upon that's how I came about writing my confection, um, and it's. Pretty much 99% true. Everything in this chapter is true. Everything in this story is true. Everything's absolutely true. I will say that.
2: Was it um, a a challenge for you to move from writing for the stage and writing for the screen and then to write prose?
0: I could never imagine writing prose. I'm like, leave that to the prose writers. so I just was so desperate to write that I just had to throw all those ideas away about what is and isn't a writer and mm-hmm. find the voice and and write, you know? I mean, because my, my thing with performing was show doing shows was always just get the show written and put it up, get the show written and put it up. So I was like, get the book written and put it out, get the story written and put it out. Um, it was a pretty easy transition. Um, but it's very different, you know it's very different. you you get the immediate satisfaction when you perform your your work. Um, you get the audience response it's it's a drug. It's definitely um, you definitely get the get this a different satisfaction. Writing is very isolated, you're very isolated and you want to eat a lot of sugar while you're writing. <laughs> I understand why a lot of people drink while they write, you know I mean, you want to go you, you want to go into that altered state but um, it's a, it's a much lonelier, um, you know, you don't have that final curtain open and there you are. With the book, it takes a lot longer, it's a lot longer. But it's a very fun, exciting process. Well, I yeah. mean,
1: what makes you keep going with the, with the prose since you don't have that immediate gratification? What kept you going with it?
0: You know, just the belief in the work, the belief in the words, the belief in the story, and just the hunger to get it out just a hunger to get it out. You know, um, it is a performance. You know, every book is a performance. Um, every book is, is, is every story is, is, is a performance on the page. Um, and I just, I never, um, I never thought I could do it, but I, I um, it it just, it. It, it, it wrote it. It wrote it. You know, I sort mm-hmm. of, I've sort of, I've thought of, I, I didn't think of myself as a, a channel. I, I do think now that I was—I'm like a channel for what I write. I—if I sit down and try and write, I'm screwed. But Same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh,
1: can I do one more question?
0: Yeah, please
2: go ahead.
1: Well, first of all, I—I I like serious props to you, Lisa, because you give voice to people like with the sugar addiction. Like, I feel like that's something that I'm sure a lot of people have, but like. It's not talked about very much. How was the response Like, once you published your book?
0: Um, Very mixed. Um, I think people wanted a solution. Some some people wanted a solution, and I didn't offer a solution. I only offered my story. I'm not a self-help writer. I don't write Mm self-help books. I write stories. Um, My family, that didn't go very well. (laughs) <laughs> but there are a number of people who read it who reached out to me and thanked me and said, thank you so much for giving a voice to something that's been a, my private problem my whole life. And that that to me, that's everything. You, know?
1: you just gave me goosebumps. That's beautiful, Lisa.
0: It's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. You know, um, when somebody that you don't know, and you'll probably never meet and you have no idea who they are, reaches out to you. Um, I also, I, <laughs> there, there was also a story um, published in the New York Post about about me and about the book. And they sort of framed it as like she, she they had a picture of me, uh, they had a picture of a woman licking a lollipop. They made it very sexual. And all of a sudden I got like a hundred Facebook requests from <laughs> strange men on the East Coast. And that was- Of course a you did. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so the reaction was mixed, but the reaction, but, but there were, there was an, a handful of incredible, um, not a, many more than a handful of incredible responses that, um, you know, I didn't write it for my Aunt Rosie, you know, Absolutely. I didn't write it for, for, you know, I didn't write it for my family or for, for people. I wrote it for people who, who speak this language and needed a story, their story told.
1: And it's a really good, like I've, I've, I've read it and I've heard it and it's a really good story all the way through. So I recommend you guys check it out. It's on Amazon, right? Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's on Amazon. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And I think that that's, that's one of the things that's so brave and powerful about writing nonfiction and writing something that's more memoir, creative nonfiction is, is that you, you ha it's, you're writing about other people and you're writing about, some a, mm-hmm. an experience that other people share and so you are sometimes going to get this pushback from people who are like oh wait you know I didn't like that or you know that wasn't how I remember it or whatever it is that you're you're talking about but to your point when you're speaking from your truth and from your mm-hmm. experience it, it's never wrong because it be. it's, it's it can't be because it's it's you it's it's who you yeah. are it's what you, you experienced and and to put yourself out there in that in that way is it can be so powerful, and I think that's what people resonate with with this story is is that yeah. truth that comes through. I mean,
1: vulnerability it, is the strongest thing. We've it's got. it's
0: also yeah. I mean I, I I've had a lot of vulnerable moments since the book came out of like, oh. but, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know you, you, you got to take a risk if you're gonna if you're gonna be heard you have to speak and um, sometimes it's just you know just the way it goes and some, some people are going to want to hear it and some people aren't and um, but it's it's um, you know it's very satisfying when when the people who you're trying to reach get it and it's it's very moving it's very moving and then then they don't feel as alone you know because you feel an addict a food addict, especially is very you feel very alone and very isolated. Food addiction um, is 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 a very isolating addiction for, for a lot of ad- food addicts and sugar addicts it's very there's a lot of shame. So um, I tried to take the shame and shake it out and you know I use myself as a character in the book and just try and make it entertaining because the bottom line is I do like to make people laugh <laughs> well, <you laughs> Anything for laugh. a laugh. <laughs>
1: i mean your book is a perfect example but like humor and sadness are really not opposites they're not that Mm -hmm. far away from each other because like there were there's always moments not just this piece but like in your writing lisa that's so profound because i will be laughing and then something will give me a gut punch and it'll Mm -hmm. it'll hurt Mm -hmm. um
0: and i I feel like
1: i feel like it's uh it's not just moments, like I feel like if I heard something again, it would reverse again, right? It's just that vulnerability that uh, creates either sadness or or humor based off of how you're listening to it. But I mean, seriously, incredibly
2: brave, like. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, well, Lisa, is there anything else that you would you would like to share with us? Do you wanna tell us anything about what you're writing now or? Oh yeah, do it,
0: <laughs> please. You don't have to. No, I, I, I would just say I could say something it's, it's interesting because so the book I'm writing now is started out as a memoir and then I decided that I would take it into um, fiction so it's autobiographical fiction which is a whole new realm mm-hmm. for me um so it is it is mostly true but I am but I am fictionalizing my story um and it's about it's about a woman. Um, who has a child late in life, and her, her terror, ter- it's about a woman's terror of motherhood in the wake of losing her mother. Um, and yeah, so I'm writing that, and it, right now the title is One Woman Show. Um, and then I'm also writing another book about another kind of addiction, uh, which is the addiction of returning, returning things to stores, and that's called The Returner. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I I love your work so much, Lisa, and I just can't wait to read both of these books. You gotta
1: you gotta release these, Lisa, for people. Yeah. Like I mean, we've gotten whiffs like in writers group and stuff, but it's gonna be good, both of them.
0: <laughs> thank yeah. you so much. Well, thank you so great. much. I really appreciate it. I oh, love what well, you guys are doing with this. You with are this lovely, podcast. Lisa. It's amazing.
2: Oh, well, thank you so much, Lisa, and thank you for being on the show. And thank you for thank that, you. that lovely
0: read. It was so oh. good. It was fun. Thanks. And you
2: can find um, all of Lisa's information and watch some YouTube videos of her, of her theater shows and learn more about her at her website, which is Lisa Cotin. That's K-O-T-I-N.com. <laughs> Thanks again, Lisa.
0: Thank you guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.
2: Ah, that was so wonderful.
1: She is so lovely.
2: Oh my gosh, I love that so much. I don't know if you're still there, Lisa, but I love you. <laughs> yes, obviously we're we're huge fans. So, all right. Well, that concludes this episode of Nobody Read Short Stories. Thank you so much. You can find all of our previous episodes at nobodyreadshortstories.com and you can download all of our episodes on Apple Podcasts. Stitcher, Google, Amazon, uh, we're, we're everywhere. So everywhere. download us and take a listen. And uh, thank you again for Jeremy, for coming back on and, and joining the fun again. It's lovely to see his face.
1: I can't wait to exist again.
2: Woo-hoo! All right, good night, everyone. Goodbye.
1: Bye.
2: No one reads short stories in- more.
0: i really don't know what they're written for go write a
2: short story and throw it out the door cause no one reads short stories funny sad or gory no one reads short stories
0: in No one reads your story.